Good morning, y'all. Many of you guys know a bit about my story. Uh, I got into church ministry at a very early age and have been a pastor now for 20 years, which is amazing since I'm only 24 years old. Uh, but I came, I came into vocational ministry through a somewhat unlikely route uh, in that the way that the Lord opened me up to the fact that this could be a potential direction in my life was through me doing something that I've never done as like my primary thing in churches, and, and that is leading worship. Um, I've always loved music. Uh, when I was nine or ten, I picked up a guitar that was laying around our house and taught myself how to play and then taught myself how to play the piano. And looking back now, I'm completely amazed at my parents who, you know, because I had this room that was like a little music studio. I had a drum kit and electric guitars, and I made just all kinds of noise in our house. And um, I'm just so amazed that my parents allowed me to do that because now uh, I just can't imagine that in our own home. Uh, of course, we have like 14 people that live at our house. Um, but when I was 12 or so, my youth minister asked me if I would help put together a worship band for our youth ministry. And uh, so I did that. And so early on in my teenage years, I was playing and singing every week uh, on Wednesday nights at our church. And at some point along the way, some adult who was uh, volunteering with our youth ministry told me after I led worship one night that I had really ministered to her. And, and for whatever reason, the Lord used those words to open up my heart to see that that he had called me into vocational ministry. Um, so, so over the years, I've, I've always led worship in the churches that I've been a part of in some capacity, and, and yet I can tell you from most of that time, I never asked, what is worship? I never asked that question. I never asked it because I thought I knew the answer to it. I thought the answer was music. I thought that's what worship was. I would help plan services, and the worship portion of the service was the music portion of the service. Seemed pretty straightforward. Yet, as I became a part of bigger and bigger churches, worship became a bigger and bigger production, and its purpose became more cloudy to me, honestly. Um, I grew up in a big church where there would be performative worship, where there would be this sort of just sit and watch other people sing uh, worship that would happen. But, but there was also a lot of congregational singing that went on as well. But when I moved to Dallas and became a part of some very large churches, the production level was just taken to a completely different plane from anything I had experienced before. And it was a world where like excellence was paramount, uh, like technical excellence was paramount to the point uh, where I found myself working in a church that would have four or 5,000 people on the weekend among a couple of different campuses, and the majority of our musicians were not volunteer church members uh, who would lead worship as a part of just being a part of the community of the church. Instead, many of them were paid professional musicians 
who would be there on Sunday morning to play. I remember being blown away by this one guy who told me, <laughs> this has been 15 years ago, but I remember this guy told me he made $2,800 a month playing bass guitar at one church in Dallas. And that made my brain explode at the time. I just couldn't believe he made that much money. And, and a lot of these guys played at different churches around town and made full-time living, supported families just playing at churches, regardless if they were members of those churches, and regardless, honestly, if they were even believers. That was kind of inconsequential. Um, I discovered there was just this whole world of gigging church musicians uh, who were quote-unquote leading worship, and yet the only requirement for their employment was that they were good at their instrument. Um, and so the more I was exposed to that type of thing, the more I began to ask questions about worship. What is worship? What does it mean to lead someone else in worship? And to be sure, music and singing are forms of worship that Scripture speaks about often. In fact, the gospel writers mention Jesus singing with his disciples. Yet, while a biblical understanding of the worship of God is inclusive of music, it is not exclusively music. Instead, I would argue from the beginning to the end of the scripture, the worship of God is primarily pictured as people doing what he tells them to do, that it is obedience. Let me read you our text this morning. This is John chapter 14. If you would turn there with me uh, in your copy of God's word, John chapter 14, and we're going to wrap up this chapter this morning. Starting in verse 15, John 14, starting in verse 15. It's Jesus speaking. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I've told you and before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. 
I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. The word of the Lord. Today we're continuing in what is called the Upper Room Discourse. Following the Last Supper and Judas's departure to betray Jesus, Jesus gives us this teaching. We said last week that the primary thesis statement of the Upper Room Discourse is that the disciples would love each other as Jesus has loved them. But if you're reading just our text today, what would the thesis statement be? Right? It would be, do what I tell you to do. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll do what I've told you to do. Have you ever noticed that Jesus never gave us uh, like intricate instructions for formal public worship? You ever thought about that before? Uh, Jesus never at any point gathered his disciples around him and said, okay, later on when you're gathering as churches, here's how I want the gathering to go. Right? He doesn't do that, does he? No, what happened for the early Christians after Jesus' resurrection and ascension was that when the early believers would gather, there were all of these elements that they imported from Judaism. Right? They, they grabbed all of these pieces from their experience growing up in synagogue, and they imported them into this new Christian church. So there was prayer. There was the reading of scripture. There was singing. There would be some element of teaching or instruction. Early Christians, though, modified what was going on in the synagogue in two primary ways. One, they gathered not on the Jewish Sabbath, which was Saturday, but instead they gathered on Sunday, which was reflective of the day on which Jesus was resurrected. That became known as the Lord's Day. But then the second thing they did was they implemented the sacraments of baptism and the Eucharist or Holy Communion or the Lord's Supper. And they did that. They did baptism and communion. Why? Well, for a lot of reasons, but primarily because these were things that had been commanded by Jesus. And the thing that baptism have and communion have in common is this focus on the sacrifice of Christ. So in other words, the early Christians were seeking to be obedient to Jesus and how their worship was structured by doing things that he had told them to do. And to that end, the sacraments were seen as the primary expression of worship, particularly communion. Every time the church gathered, it was the apex of the worship experience to the point where very early on when Christians were persecuted, um, they would not allow non-believers to be a part of the Eucharist experience. There would be two parts to the service. There would be the word and then the sacrament. And after the word portion was over, anybody who was not a baptized believer would have to leave as they then entered into the Eucharist uh, or the sacrament portion of the service. So that was kind of the pinnacle of early Christian worship. Not some special, special musical number, uh, not even a sermon, but the body and blood of Christ. 
There's this old uh, Chris Tomlin song I was thinking about this morning. You and I were made to worship. Do you remember that song? Uh, and that may be true, but we are really terrible worshipers. We're really terrible worshipers if we're talking about the worship of God. Uh, we take this impulse we have to worship and we direct it at anything but Jesus. Right? That is our tendency. Money, politicians, fame, sex, success, luxury, career, children, on and on and on. The question is not if you are a worshiper, it's more what do you worship or who do you worship? And Jesus knows that just telling his disciples, just giving them this instruction to be obedient to him is not enough. Even his closest followers are so bad at worshiping him that when he's arrested, they scatter. They abandon him. He knows they can't do it on their own. So Jesus says, I'm going to send you a helper, even the Holy Spirit himself. And what does the Holy Spirit do? Jesus says in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit equips us for worship because the Holy Spirit equips us for obedience. Notice how he will teach you all things. He will bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. So the Holy Spirit doesn't equip us necessarily for worship by like getting the environment dialed in in like a worship space as a, at a specific time on a specific day. He doesn't even primarily equip us for worship by imparting supernatural giftings. No, what Jesus says here is he teaches and he reminds. Right? So here's what we can't lose sight of. The Holy Spirit is God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. This is the nature of God as Trinity. If you are listening and being obedient to the Spirit, you are being obedient to Jesus. If you are being obedient to the Spirit, you are being obedient to the Father. You can't be obedient to one and not all. This is one of the reasons why Jesus' coming, his incarnation, his becoming flesh is so significant. Look at verse 16 in our text. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus is going away, but he says, don't worry, I'm sending the helper who is the Holy Spirit. Notice especially the end of verse 17. He's already with you, but he will be in you. This is so similar to the language that Jesus used earlier in this chapter. We saw this last week where Jesus said, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. You remember that? Here's something we need to realize about the Holy Spirit. He's not just a part of God. He is God. Jesus is saying, if you are actually going to be successful at being obedient to me, you are going to need me literally inside of you. Do you notice he said we're going to set up our home inside of you? If you're actually going to worship me, you need me directing your worship. 
Here's what it looks like, I think, for the Holy Spirit to be directing our worship. Um, So Jesus has given us this command, right, to love each other. And what he says is, other people are going to see your love for each other, or at least this is the ideal. Other people are going to see how you love each other, church. They're going to see how you care for each other, disciples. And that's going to produce in them some kind of response. And the response that Jesus is, I think, primarily looking at is this response of love for God. And what's so fascinating about that is it is cyclical. So as people see us loving each other, that's going to breed in them a love for God, which is going to complete the circle. Their love for God is ultimately, their desire to be obedient to Christ is ultimately going to produce and disseminate love for others within the church, which is just going to perpetuate this. And ultimately, this is the great Shema. This is the great commandment of Judaism, which Jesus modifies it a little bit. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. These aren't two like separate commands. They are deeply intertwined and and they perpetuate each other. Like when we love each other in the way that Christ has loved us, when we demonstrate that sacrificial agape type love in each other's lives, right? It helps other people see the Father. It helps other people see Jesus and fall in love with him. And out of a desire to love him well and to be obedient to him, it produces love for the body. As we said last week, there's a sense in which Jesus isn't talking to all of us here. There's a a context in which he's directly talking to his disciples, right? He's preparing them for his death, which is only hours away at this point. He talks of them remembering what he has said. Like they can remember those things, not because they read them in the Bible, but because they heard him say them. However, They're different than us in that way. However, when the promised Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2, he doesn't just fill the apostles, does he? No. He fills the lives of all believers. And the apostle Paul takes that reality and poses this question to his readers in Galatians. Who or what do you worship? And Paul is also defining worship based on obedience. Because he defines it based on who or what we are led by. Who is your master is another way of asking that question. Turn with me to Galatians 5 real quick. Galatians chapter 5. This isn't going to be on the screen. Galatians 5. Paul says, you are either led by the spirit or you are led by the flesh. Galatians 5 starting in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, 
and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So Paul loves giving those big lists uh, throughout his writing. But, but I want you to just look real quick. I'm going to just do a little rabbit trail for us. Uh, look at verses 19 through 21. Look at that list of things he has there. I think, I think most of us know what all of those are, except maybe one. Is, is there one there that sticks out to you as being especially weird? Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. It's just kind of dot, dot, dot. Does, does one stick out as being peculiar to you? Sorcery? Anybody? What in the world is going on there? This is, this is fascinating because most of these things are very familiar to us. We know what he's talking about. We know what he's getting at. But then there's this sorcery one here in the middle of all of this. So, so what is this? Um, so here's, here's the Greek word that's used here. Pharmakeia. Pharmakeia. This is a word that's used three times in the New Testament. It's used here in Galatians, and then it's used twice in the book of Revelation. And what do you think this is, right? Like when you see that uh, prefix, right? This is where we get our English word, what? Pharmacy. So, literally translated, the word is drugs. But the reason why our translation translates it as sorcery, and some other translations translate it as witchcraft, is because there is this idea among scholars, and I don't really know that this holds a lot of water, it's, it's an older idea, but the idea is basically that there is some level of order to Paul's list here, and that because that word, pharmakeia, appears next to the word for idolatry, so the worship of false gods, that it's bumped up right against that, that specifically that Paul's referring to using drugs in some sort of ritualistic or religious experience. Um, so there were certainly pagan religions that used uh, things like opium. Opium goes all the way back to the time of Moses. This is something that was happening during the time of Christ, during the time of Paul as well. But literally translated, the word is drugs. 
And in the Greek, it's the same as English in the sense that the context of that word totally depends on the sentence that it's in. So, so I could say, I took some drugs and my headache went away. Or I could say, I took some drugs and woke up in a dumpster behind Superior Grill, right? Like two, two very different contexts, right? So the exact same thing's going on here in the Greek. And so it isn't sufficient to just translate it as drugs because it, it, it's not just drugs. Like it clearly has a negative connotation here. Um, and, and so we have to be real careful with things like that. There are, there are some Christians out there because there is no other uh, Greek word in the New Testament for medicine. Uh, this is it. Uh, there are some Christians out there that think that Christians should never take medicine, which I don't, I don't think is something that the New Testament is teaching. The question is, why are you using these things? Right? Why are you using these things? Because the counterbalance here is being led by the Spirit. Right? This is, that's the context. Are we being led by the flesh? Are we being led by the Spirit? Are we seeking to gratify the desires of the flesh? Or are we seeking to honor the Spirit of God? Isn't that fascinating? So there are plenty of ways where I can take drugs, but do that in a way that isn't in any way dishonoring to my body or to anybody else. Part of the, part of the idea here is that manifesting the fruit of the Spirit directly affects our love for each other. Right? When you read through that list of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, like if you're somebody who ex is exuding the fruit of the Spirit, then you better believe you're going to be somebody who is sacrificially loving the people around you. That isn't self-focused, right? That isn't, isn't like making decisions based on what's going to gratify their base fleshly desires, right? No, no, no. I, I'm... I'm being led by the Spirit of God. As Paul said, I'm like keeping in step with the Spirit. Here's the challenge for us guys. We have to examine our lives, like take an account of our lives. And not just like substances that we're using, but, but look through that whole list of things. Like what are the ways that we are turning to other sources for guidance, uh, or for being led in some way, or for comfort, or for meaning, or for purpose, or to give us identity other than the Spirit of God himself. Uh, I've shared with some of you, I stopped uh, drinking alcohol at the beginning of this year. And while I wouldn't say I was an alcoholic, it was something for me that had become a daily thing. It, it was something for me that had become a bit of a habitual thing. And at the end of the day, it was like, well, why am I doing that? Like, like what's leading me to do that? Well, it's, it's me. It's my flesh. It's because I want to come home at the end of the day and relax and have something to drink. And, and yet that's something that can, like so many things in our lives, sex, food, alcohol, whatever, it, it can either be this great gift of God or if we use it only to satisfy the desires of the flesh, it can easily devolve 
right? It can easily become this incredibly negative thing in our lives. So I think that's the, that's the grid that we have to filter everything through as we look at our day-to-day, as we look at our lives, is what does it look like for me to seek to stay in step with the Spirit of God, to be led by the Spirit of God, and to seek to manifest the fruit of the Spirit. And here's the deal with the fruit of the Spirit. Like, this is the soil for loving people as Christ has loved us. Because when you look at that list of fruit, there's only one person I know who has manifested all of those things perfectly, and that is Jesus himself. He is our example. If we are exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, we will be living lives of love. This is what Paul means when he says, keep in step with the Spirit. I think it's what Jesus means uh, when he says, like, abide in me, as we talked about at our retreat last weekend. Um, Stay with him. Don't just listen to him occasionally. Don't just be obedient when it's convenient to you. Cultivate lives that are in step with him. So um, with that in mind, we talked a bit at our membership retreat last weekend um, about this idea of creating a rule of life. And a rule of life is basically a structure or a guide for living this kind of in-step life, this life of abiding in Christ, Uh, this life of seeking to be led by him rather than by the flesh itself. And as we move into the new year, we are going to intentionally begin looking at different spiritual practices that help us to cultivate Lives that are in step with the Spirit. To cultivate lives of abiding. And um, the first one we're going to look at is the practice of Sabbath. Which, of all the Ten Commandments, is the one that every single person in this room has broken. Not only have we all broken the Sabbath, most of us generally think there's nothing wrong with the fact that I've broken the Sabbath. All nine of the other commandments, we would say, yeah, that's not a good thing if I'm not uh, following the Lord in those things. But when it comes to the Sabbath, for one reason, for some reason, we go, eh, whatever. It really is kind of fascinating. It's also one of the hardest and uh, the most culturally uh, foreign to us in today's world. And so that's where we're going to begin. Huge problem uh, uh, for us is... We fail to see how our lack of not just rest, but how our lack of rest in God is contributing to us living lives where we are more often submitting to the flesh than the spirit. We would all deeply benefit from a weekly day that revolves around nothing other than resting in God, enjoying him, enjoying his good gifts, worshiping him, enjoying our community, And yet so few of us actually have it. Guys, I think if we're going to be the kind of people who stay in step with the Spirit, if we're going to be the kind of people who live
live lives of worship where we're seeking to do what Christ has called us to do, that is not something that will happen accidentally. Like, it, it is not something that we're just going to wake up and suddenly find ourselves in that gear. Like, it is something we have to intentionally curate and, and develop. It's a muscle that has to be exercised and grown. And so here's your homework uh, in preparation for our consideration of the Sabbath in about a month, a uh, month and a half. I, I don't think your Sabbath absolutely has to be Sunday, by the way. I think it can be. I think that's awesome. But over the next few weeks, during the busyness of the holidays, consider if I were to have a Sabbath, what day would it be? If I were to have an intentional day of rest to enjoy God and to enjoy his good gifts, when would I do that? And would it be possible even now for you and your family to like earmark even just half a day a week? as a time of rest and worship? And what would it look like for you to start there and move toward an entire day? How could that better position you, better position your family to listen to the Spirit of God and to worship God through obedience? This isn't magic. Like, like if, if he is going to become the center of our lives, we have to intention that he would become the center of our lives. Because as we've said before, just because he moves in and sets up his home within us doesn't mean we become some kind of a spiritual robot, right? We still have to say yes to the Spirit. We still have to be obedient to the leading of Christ. And so, with those things in mind this morning, let me pray for you. Let me pray for me as well, because this is something we all struggle with. It's something we all need help with. It's something we all need to be continually reminded of. As well. So, would you join me as we pray? Father, thank you for your word. Uh, thank you for your truth this morning. I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts and just breed within us this desire to be people of worship. Um, who, when we come together and sing and pray, that what flows out of us would be this overflow of a weak spent seeking to make you the center of our existence and seeing your goodness in the midst of the everyday mess of life and the everyday brokenness of life. God, would you give us hearts that long for that, who want to cultivate that kind of way of life, who want to move things around, who want to replace things so that you could be the center of our existence. And God, would you, uh, through things like that, would you revolutionize even our lives with each other? Even our community, as good as it may be right now, God, would you make it even better, even deeper, even more uh, intimate with each other, God, as we become more aligned with you and your way? Help us, Lord, uh, when we are tempted. Help us when we find comfort in the things of the flesh rather than you. God, surround us with people who will pray for us. Surround us with people that we can be honest with and truthful with, who will hold our junk and who will walk with us through it. God, that is what the church is all about. And we thank you that you've given us a model in that. God, that you haven't given us something to do that you yourself haven't also walked through. We thank you for Jesus. Jesus, we look to you. Fill us with your spirit, Father. Give us hearts that desire to be obedient. May God bless.
bless the hearing and reading of this word. Amen.